Welcome to Perceptions Today podcast, where we discuss consciousness in all forms. May 2022, episode 24, Laird Scranton joins us in a round table Q&A, meet and greet, part one of two. Laird Scranton is an independent researcher of ancient cosmology, energy, language, and much more. The One of the early expressions of the cosmological philosophy that I'm exploring, it's a companion to yoga in India. And all of the terminology is the same. It's just yoga is the individualized expression of, of the cosmological concepts. So that goes along with what you're saying, that simply to look at, at an individual and the energetics of what makes a person a person, um, you're addressing all these same concepts. Yeah, you know, just, I just love it because it's like we're comparing notes here, and it's like so cool. My husband and I have just finished the book. It's getting ready for publication but it's and it has to do with you know laws how energy influences us it's the nuances but it honestly i'm just just taken by by the wisdom that you're sharing and all the work and the dedication that you've had so thank you yeah thank you very much this is an instance of the conversation coming up in the roundtable discussion participants knew it was being recorded Welcome to Perception Today. It's 2022, March the 10th. It's our Zoom chat meeting 25 with our special guest, Laird Scranton, in a question and answer and a meet and greet. If you're not familiar with Perception Today account, we contemplate all areas of consciousness research. I'm your host, Paul. And normally we have our co-host who is Centered Awareness, but she will be just watching from the sidelines today. She deals in meditation and coaching and also energy work. She's also known as Melissa. We have to make sure that you get recognition. And to keep up to date, follow the links that are provided on either the Facebook page or Twitter. But you can find the best link is Linktree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R, full stop, double E, forward slash, perceptions, full stop, today. This includes our event list schedule, and also mailing lists, as well as social media, and also YouTube accounts, etc., that you can all interact with. Now, if you are not familiar with, hang on, I was hearing someone rolling backwards and forwards. That's <laughs> okay. Hi, guys. I'm going to just check in with Paul. Um, I think we've lost him. Just hang in for two seconds. And... Thank you very much for bringing me back in. Did anyone tell me? Did anyone hear me talk about Lad's bio? You just went silent. I had deja vu yesterday. I'm going to have deja vu again. Right. Okay. Melissa, where did I drop out? No, go ahead. No. Where did I drop out? We didn't hear any of, we we heard none of Lad's bio. You completely dropped out. It was silent. (laughs) It's like you forgot his name and then you just left. (laughs) (laughs) I set up these meetings and then run away. Okay, take two. <laughs> right. If you don't know Les Granton, here is a quick bio. He's an independent software designer who became interested in the Dogon mythology and symbolism in the early 1990s. He has studied ancient myth and language and cosmology since 1997 and has been a lecturer at Colgate University. He's written 16 books so far, and they're... Topics range from language to cosmology and ancient mysteries. His work, his works include articles published in the University of Chicago's Anthropology News and Academic Journal, in the Templars University Encyclopedia of African Religion, and in the Vasa Quarterly Magazine. His book, The Science of the Dogon, was taught at the Colgate University under the title Hidden Meanings and a Study of the Founding of Symbols of Civilization. He is featured in John Anthony West's Magical Egypt documentary series, and in Carmen Boultier's 
the Pyramid Code, a series broadcast by the Documentary Channel. It's my great honor to introduce Les Granton with no more complications, I think. Well, thank you very much. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this gathering all week. (laughs) For those of you who are not familiar with my work, what I do essentially is I try to learn more about myths and symbols and words uh, and rituals of ancient cultures by comparing how different ancient cultures um, understood the same elements. And so uh, using those comparisons, I try to triangulate in on original meanings. And uh, there are a number of different techniques for demonstrating that a meaning is an original meaning. My entry point to the studies is a modern-day African tribe called the Dogon. This is a modern-day primitive tribe. They live in the south of Mali, um, eight hours across the desert from anything um, most of us would consider to be civilized. Their societal imperative is to preserve original meanings and original forms. They, their culture makes an excellent entry point to these studies because they have civic um, practices that uh, are predictive of ancient Egyptian practices at around 3000 BC. They have rituals that are like ancient Judaism, and they preserve a symbolic cosmology that is uh, comparable to the Buddhist cosmology that goes with a uh, Buddha, Buddhist stupa shrine. There are also uh, abiding connections to, to Hinduism and to other traditions uh, that trace back as far as Gobekli Tepe around 9000 BC in southeastern Turkey. Now, the Dogen priests say that their symbolic tradition is, is describing how matter forms. More broadly, they're talking about concepts of creation. And when they say creation, what they mean is all at once they are referring to how matter forms, how the universe forms, um, how biological life comes about, and how consciousness comes about. And they see parallelism between those themes. And to underscore that parallelism, and I think perhaps to show off a little bit, Their symbolic tradition includes a single progression of symbols that simultaneously apply to all four of those themes. Those themes are so inherently similar to each other that each symbol carries meaning for each of the themes. So we can't really properly ask what a given symbol represents. We have to ask instead, what does the symbol represent if we're talking about biological reproduction or what does it represent if we're talking about mass or matter? And the stages are, are parallel to each other. So there's comparability between the meanings of the symbols, but the specific meaning varies depending on the theme we're talking about. At bottom, what the Dogen are trying to get at are root dynamics of energy. My first studies of the Dogen, the first book that I wrote, um, is basically a side-by-side comparison between what the Dogen say about matter and what people like Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene say about it. And in many cases... You can take a Dogen description and a Dogen drawing and substitute it for a paragraph and a diagram in Stephen Hawking's book and not change the meaning of Hawking's book. There's intuitive comparison between the ancient representation and the scientific representation. Um, It was very easy to see that when they're talking about atoms and the components of atoms, the Dogen had their material right. They correctly describe um, what an atom is 
and they correctly describe how protons and electrons um, are, are components of atoms, that they even include a drawing that in, is an intuitive image of a, an electron orbital uh, shape. However, over time, what we learn is that, okay, the Dogen are correctly describing from the quantum domain to the atom how matter forms in, in scientifically reasonable ways. However, that piece of the symbolism is ultimately there to establish a credential so that they can then talk about a whole other piece of it, root, root energetics that go deeper than what a Stephen Hawking or a Brian Greene talks about. And because they've established a, this creden, cre, credential, we, have, we should have confidence that they know what they're talking about when they discuss where the energetics come from. And ultimately, they're describing a continuum of energy that begins as a domain of pure energy and culminates as an atom. So that's sort of the, the overview of, of what my work is about. Um, my progression of books sort of moved geographically from Africa to Egypt to India, Tibet and China, uh, to ancient Turkey. Then, then they jumped to um, uh, northern Scotland, um, to Orkney Island in the era of around 3200 B.C., and then from Orkney, things fan out in all directions. We have connections to um, to the Mediterranean. We have um, connections to ancient Egypt. We have connections uh, ultimately to um, North America and to Polynesia. Um, there are clear indications that we have direct connections to South America. I just have, haven't uh, had the moment to pursue those in, in depth yet. Um, in order to understand how all this connects to consciousness, it's helpful to understand what the energetics are because it's the same set of energetics that apply to matter and that apply to consciousness. And the easiest way or the most comprehensive way to describe the stages of those energetics is by discussing matter because matter has the most refined set of, um, of stages that we already know about. So to get to the bottom of the issue, we're talking about, ultimately we're talking about a handful of dynamics of energy that are in the end perfectly understandable and that recur in similar form on all upward scales, no matter um, what perspective we look at it from, looking in the macrocosm, looking in the solar system, looking at the level of everyday physics, at the level of the atom, quantum physics, or even uh, dynamics that precede quantum entanglement conceptually, it's all the same set of elements uh, sort of cycled down dimensionally. Um, we understand that oscillating energy in a circle in two dimensions is the same dynamic as oscillating back and forth in the one linear dimension. We understand that the rotation of the Earth in, in three linear dimensions is the same as those two oscillations. And so um, a large part of what the Dogen system is about is providing us with clear-cut examples of how that parallelism is a thing. The Dogen are actively trying to point us to structures that are clearly within our view in the, our neighborhood of the macrocosm that illustrate these root dynamics of energy. And uh, when we understand how they correlate to um, effects that happen in the microcosm, then we have confidence that we're talking about a, a set of dynamics that hold true all the way up the all the way up the scale. 
So this gets a little uh, a little complicated. I'll try to make it as simple as I can. Uh, we're, one of the terms we're familiar with is doors to perception. Well, when we say that phrase, doors to perception, we unknowingly are repeating one of the tropes of this ancient symbolism that goes back perhaps 11,000 years. The Dogen system literally be- begins with symbols that are carved into two uh, door panels of the house of the high Dogen priest called the arrow priest. And on one panel is carved the root dynamic of magnetism. Magnetism in its root state, every tiny little north-south pole of magnetism aligned perfectly together in a grid. Um, electricity in its root form, um, when it's unresisted, will zigzag every which direction to try to fill a, a, a domain of energy or a spatial domain of energy that, that it could fill. Um, that pattern, which is a direct match for how science represents it, is carved into the second door panel. Conceptually, these door panels represent bookends on either end, uh, sort of at the beginning of and at the middle of of a dynamic of energy that we can think of as being circular, that it progresses in a single direction from the first state of energy to the second state, and then back again to the first state again. Each, Each initial state ultimately evokes the second, its alternate state. And the dynamics are fairly simple. If we want the simple view of them, we look at them in at the lowest dimensional perspective. If we want a more comprehensive understanding of how how the interrelationship is between magnetism and electricity, which are the two energies that are involved, we look at a higher dimensional view to get the, the greater detail. At the simplest level, what happens is the the half of the cycle that pertains to energy producing material forms begins with a domain that's superconductive. Superconductivity is a state where electricity flows unresisted at a level just below the threshold that would evoke magnetism. So magnetism is dormant, but electricity is persistent and unresisted. It's a perpetual flow of of electrical charge that would require no input of energy to continue forever. Periodically, that arrangement of energy will create a spark. Or anytime that circuit of energy, which is is, um, transpiring, is interrupted, a spark will be created. And that spark becomes a catalyst for a whole chain reaction of of states of energy that ultimately produce material forms. And it's automatic. It automatically self-differentiates a second domain. The first, if we imagine the first domain as being a non-material domain, an energetic domain, that spark awakens two monopoles of magnetism, what eventually become the north and the south pole of a magnet. And because of the input and energy, causes those poles to flip in relation to the superconductive domain that they reside in. Now, anytime you have 
what's called anti-parallel magnetism in a domain like that, it automatically get, comes to be ejected from the domain and the rest of the domain reverts back to its, its superconductive state. And so as they rotate and are ejected from the domain, they carry the third monopole, which is the spark of electricity. It's an electric point charge with it out into a second domain. And what we're essentially doing is, if you're familiar with the game Mahjong, uh, this is a, a tile game that's played with uh, ivory tiles. The, you begin the game with all the tiles face down on the table, and each player draws a tile to try to make a hand. And by the time the game's over, all of the tiles have been flipped face up. That's what's happening with magnetism. It begins in a superconductive domain with magnetism aligned one way, and by the time we're done, we end with what's called a super-insulating domain. It's the reverse of superconductivity. It's where magnetic flux is unimpeded and electricity is dormant. That comes about once enough of the magnets have been flipped that you end up getting um, what's called vortex crowding occurs. There's so many tiny little vortices of energy that have been created that there's no longer room to house them all, and so they collapse themselves back down to perfectly aligned magnetism, now now aligned with the north and south poles opposite to what they had been before. Dynamically, that's what's going on with matter. Now, the dynamics that make that work involve, they're related to a concept called angular momentum. Angular momentum is a scientific term for spinning energy. Angular momentum occurs anytime you have two qualities of energy come together, different qualities of energy come together, they tend to spin. Um, it happens with streams of water. If you have two streams of water meet that are of different temperature or different speeds, they'll tend to create a vortex that spins. Uh, same thing with energy. Water becomes a pervasive metaphor for the way energy works because the dynamics are the same. So the energetics begin with a dynamic called angular impulse, which is the act of these two energies coming together. And the, the signature shape of that is a kind of a crisscrossing pattern. It's a shape that um, is expressed in the name of the goddess Neith who weaves matter. Um, it's the shape that the moon's orbit around the earth makes if you consider their, the motion of both bodies through space rather than getting a, uh, um, sitting in one place, uh, circle around a point, you get a crisscrossing action of orbits back and forth in relation to each other or relationships with each other. That's angular impulse. Angular momentum pro uh, produces resonance and eventually fosters resistance in the same way that... Um, a snowplow pushing snow reaches a point where there's so much snow in front of the plow that it can no longer um, contain the body of snow in front of the plow. And so the, the, the snow then is pushed off perpendicularly to the sides of the plow. Well, that's what happens with energy. That spinning energy builds up resistance to the point that um, vectors of energy are then emitted from the spinning energy to relieve that the tension that's created by that resistance and the, the um, uh, resonance. Now, Einstein says that spinning energy that create, as we form, create mass, we're slowing time frame. 
And the idea that time, the pace of time slows as um, acceleration increases or, or mass increases is a prospect that has been tested any number of times to ever more refined um, levels of, of um, you know, ever, ever greater degrees of uh, decimal points. We were, have a more and more refined proof that Einstein's correct that time frame slows um, with acceleration or mass. Um, ultimately, what's happening in this dynamic of energy that moves from superconductivity to, to superinsulation, the key thing that's changing is the pace of time. Um, an intuitive way to understand that is um, we all, we're all familiar with how water pressure increases with depth of water. Um, water pressure ends up becoming a, a metaphor for pace of time. A slower pace of time equates to changes in pressure in water. Uh, just as a buoyant object will naturally gravitate to the domain of least pressure, so a body of mass will naturally gravitate to a domain of slowest time frame, which is the domain of greatest mass. And the effect isn't being caused by a particle or by a force. It's, it's a push rather than a pull. The Dogen defined gravity is a push. And um, it, it's as, entirely as natural as a, an air bubble uh, floating to the surface of a body of water. In that process, as the time frame slows as we're, we're moving across this continuum from superconductivity to superinsulation. What's documented in symbolic ways is our um, domains of energy that compare to biological zones in the deep ocean. We understand that as we move down in a body of water in the very deep depths of the oceans, that there's certain life, life forms that thrive best at certain, under certain conditions. And so there's certain fish that prefer to be at the surface. There are bottom feeders that prefer to be at the bottom. Um, what zone a life form prefers depends on a number of factors. Um, how much sunlight do they like? What temperature of water do they like? How much water pressure can they stand? There are certain life forms that can cross between the boundaries of those zones. Uh, a whale can dive through the zones all the way to the bottom. Other life forms are restricted simply to the, the zone that they prefer. If they move out of that zone, they can't thrive. So Rene Guinan, who is a go-to authority for the perspectives of Hinduism about this same system of symbology, describes consciousness, uh, um, describes, how can I say this, descending uh, levels of consciousness as we move towards matter. It, it leads us to individual um, consciousness, which is sort of the lowest subset of a grander set of consciousnesses. And those consciousnesses, as he perceives them, coincide with these energetic zones that are being created according to the Dogen. That Consciousness in the mindset of this ancient tradition, there are two ways to describe what it is. Consciousness 
is the dynamic of Osiris in Egypt. It's the ability to take a thing, break it down into its individual components, and then later reconstruct it from those components. Consciousness is the ability to do that. Um, I often say that just as any person or most people who can reconcile um, two slightly different viewpoints, two slightly different viewpoints, images on a scene, automatically attain a three three dimensional perspective on that. What would otherwise be a two dimensional scene? The same thing is true of consciousness: the ability to reconcile a viewpoint of overview with a viewpoint of detail is inherently the mode of consciousness. Any entity that has that ability is is conscious. So the stages of energy that are being evoked happen in factors of 10. Um, The Dogen describe what they, they call 14 superposed universes. But what they're really talking about are domains of energy that work very much like those biological zones that we can conceptualize as zones of consciousness in the very those very same um, stages, fourteen stages. Um, the reality that we're familiar with sits at the tenth step up in that sequence out of fourteen. So there are four more implied stages that move beyond where we're at right now. And at the end of those four stages, the energetics come back to a super insulating condition where suddenly all, all the processes that produced um, material forms have now, are now reunified back into, um, into a unified situation. Now, there's another set of dynamics that are very important to this that are, um, that are a little tricky to convey. Um, Einstein says that an increase in mass slows the pace of time. We all know that the speed of light is treated as a constant, which means that light is able to travel a certain distance in a, in a moment. And let's, let's imagine that we're objective observers sitting outside of the system, and we have an objective view of how long that moment is, and we know how, long, how far light can travel in that objective moment. If we now foster mass and slow the time frame such that that objective moment now takes twice as long to happen as it used to, light, which has a constant speed, is now able to extend twice as far as it could before. That's what we're perceiving as the expansion of space. We can illustrate that scientifically because in the same period of time that the universe doubled its volume, the ratio of mass to universe also doubled. So there's a one-to-one correspondence between the formation of mass and our perception of the expansion of space. And when scientists look out into space, into the distance, further and further out into the distance with telescopes, and they take their measurements, what it looks like to them is that the further out you go, the more rapidly the universe is expanding. And so they can't understand what could possibly be that's accelerating the expansion rate of the universe. And so they postulate dark matter, dark energy as um, something necessary to give the additional 
push of acceleration to get the expansion of the universe to speed up. But from the Dogen perspective, that's not what's going on. What's going on is that we're seeing the effect of the slowing pace of our own time frame, the progressive slowing of it. It's as if you're a passenger on a train traveling on a track next to a second train, and now one of the trains changes speed. Um, it might not be immediately clear to you whether which, which uh, train sped up or slowed down. You can see there's a difference in speed, but it's not immediately clear. Did my train slow down or did their train speed up or vice versa? So as a caution against this, the ancient Egyptians gave us a, a concept called mat. Mat is a very um, complex idea that um, researchers have had, had a hard time getting their arms around. What do they really mean when they say mat? Um, some people say it means truth. Sometimes, some say it refers to a quality of justice. Um, the pharaoh as leader of Egypt, was responsible for maintaining Mott. I have a, an, um, uh, an unfair advantage. The, uh, the advantage I have is that I understand that prior to 500 BC, words in various ways were formulated to express their own definitions. Uh, at 500 BC, Confucius in China loudly and bitterly complained because Chinese words were no longer, could no longer be counted on to do that. With Dogen language, every syllable corresponds to a concept. And so those syllables are sort of mixed and matched and combined to, to build larger concepts like building blocks. And so I don't have to guess what a Dogen word means. If I know how it's pronounced, I know what the symbols, what root concept goes with each symbol. I can guess what the combined um, syllables represent. With the Egyptian hieroglyphic language, the same thing is true with, with um, the hieroglyphs, the individual glyphs. Um, both um, Thomas Young, the, the polymath from England, and uh, Champollion, who, was, uh, who translated, ended up translating the Rosetta Stone, both of them delayed for a period of months in publishing their findings because they had a, a nagging sense there was more to the Egyptian glyphs just than just stop you there, lad. Like that. Excuse me? I was just thirsty because Cosmic's got a question here. Okay. And before we let Cosmic say anything, for all the people who just turned up, we obviously are going with the principle that if you hear something that you want to interject to, put your hand up and we get you in as soon as possible on that and uh, go from there. And I did miss out mentioning about how we were using our reaction buttons, but that's in the chat and hopefully people can see that and go from that point of view. And I have to say, you're making the concepts very simple, which is great, Laird, because I've been listening <laughs> my, over the years. It's the doing of the people who put the system together. They were very talented. I know, but at the moment, you're giving a good overview for people who haven't come into it before, who I know in this room are coming in for the first time, obviously listening to about your research and across those cultures as well. So Cosmic. This is a very weird thing, but uh, for some reason, when you were just saying all that, I was thinking the onomatopoeia of consciousness. Onomatopoeia of consciousness. Yes. You know, yes. like, like, <laughs> That's exactly the, the term that came into my brain then. I don't know if that's an accurate description of it, 
but that's the way it came across to me. I just thought I'd throw that in there. I don't know what you think about that. But, um, no, that that's true. There, there's an intuitiveness to the 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 sounds themselves. Yeah, um, exactly. the cosmological concepts that work the same way. That if you know what the original name was for a god or a goddess in a tradition, you can guess what their symbolism was. Exactly. To- that, that's why I said I don't want to because I know that that's, it's like beep or click or whatever is like what we call onomatopoeia. But if you apply it to consciousness, that's exactly what it is, like what you just described. Thank you. That's all I wanted to say. No, that's an excellent observation. It's absolutely true. Good way to represent it. Okay, so in Egyptian hieroglyphic language, Young and Champollion were convinced there was more to the glyphs than just phonetics. Every every glyph has a, a, a phonetic value the same way every letter in English does. The problem is that there are only about 40-some phonetic values that most written languages try to represent. But we have 4,000 ancient Egyptian glyphs. So it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that there must have been something else going on. You don't need 100 glyphs to represent every vowel sound. So working from a set of 30 Dogen cosmological drawings uh, that happen to also coincide with 30 Egyptian glyphs, same shape and same symbolic meaning, I decided to try to tackle understanding how those glyphs were being used in certain words. Uh, And had I had perfect knowledge, I would have discovered, I would have started with an ancient Egyptian word uh, for the concept of a week, uh, like days of a week. Um, The Egyptian word is written with two glyphs, a very simple word. Uh, The first glyph is a circle with a dot in the middle of it. That's the geometry of angular momentum. And the best example um, we have of that is the earth uh, moving around the sun. So it becomes a sun glyph. But it also takes on the meaning of, it conveys the idea of the concept of a day. So that's the first glyph. The second glyph is an upside-down U, which is the Egyptian number 10. I looked at the word, and I thought, this conveys to me symbolically the notion of a 10-day week, 10 days. And so I went and I did some research, and I discovered the ancient Egyptians observed a 10-day week. And I thought, wow. The, the simple form of the word just conveyed correct information to me about the culture that I didn't know before. And I pursued that a little ways. I discovered that the ancient Chinese word for week was written with two glyphs, a sun glyph that was originally round with a dot in the center of it, and the Chinese number 10, and they also observed a 10-day week. So we have fundamental com- comparability between Egyptian hieroglyphs and ancient Chinese hieroglyphs at that level of interpretation. At, at some point in time. So looking to the Egyptian word for mat to try to understand what the concept of mat was trying to convey, I discovered that the glyphs, okay, uh, I got to back up a little bit. In addition to the word, certain words, I mean, virtually every Egyptian word explaining its own meaning through its glyphs, there are certain words where there's a trailing glyph tacked on to the end of that that is unpronounced. And the Egyptologists feel that those glyphs um, are there for emphasis because usually they have something, the image that's presented has something to do with the meaning of the word. But I can see from the work I'm doing that 
the purpose of that word is to assign a meaning to the trailing glyph. And once I figured that out, then I could develop a long list of Egyptian glyphs and their meanings based on the authority of what the Egyptian language itself says the glyph means, not what some interpreter thinks. As a matter of fact, one of the projects I've been working on recently is to trace that, starting with the simplest concept um, to try to trace the symbolic meanings that are assigned to Egyptian glyphs without ever using a glyph that I haven't already defined. And so, Can I ask you a quick so, question? How would you work out the kind of words finish and the end glyph is? Are they distinctive, these particular glyphs, to sort of say, this is the end, you know, you got your sentence now, for example, and then you got this end glyph. How do you work out it is an end glyph? Or do you just always think everything that is the last thing on that line is the emphasis point? Um, typically, it's a single glyph. It's not always. There are different forms of what I call defining words. But once you're able to read the meanings of the other glyphs and you know what the word is defined as representing, the concept it represents, it's pretty easy to understand when the definition of that concept finishes. Um, so you, ha you have sort of self um, back and forth reinforcing system here because no, if you know what they're talking about and you know that the glyphs are there to, re to represent that, um, you, you're then able to draw a hard and fast line and say, okay, this glyph is over the line and the other glyphs aren't. But sometimes there's a little bit of confusion as to whether the trailing glyph um, is part of the definition or whether it's being defined. Um, and that comes down to a matter of experience and a matter of judgment. It also comes down to uh, the Egyptians often have multiple words for the same concept. Uh, for example, there's a word for, um, for one of my books, I was trying to come up with a succinct definition of what a symbol is. And I had made several passes at it. I had written, you know, a page worth of, or a couple of paragraphs worth of definition that I thought encapsulated what the idea of a symbol was. And then I would get up the next morning and reread it and think, no, that's not right. That just not, doesn't hit the mark. And finally, it, it occurred to me, the Egyptians have two words for symbol. Why shouldn't I look to those words for a succinct definition of what a symbol is? The first word is um, Hashem, and the glyphs of the word read, um, action preserves knowledge, followed by the Horus Falcon glyph, which is the, the picture of a falcon sitting on a standard. The second word is Akam, and the glyphs of the word read, action replicates knowledge, followed by that same Horus Falcon glyph. So that, from my point of view, that's two succinct definitions of what a symbol is given from the perspective first of the person who encodes a symbol and the second from the perspective of the person who interprets it. And it's defined in terms of not a drawing or um, an object or uh, a myth. It's defined in terms of an action. Any action we take that has the effect of preserving a meaning that someone else can then retrieve the meaning from the action uh, is a symbol. So I went to the ancient Egyptian word for mat to try to understand what the word mat meant. Um, 
And I realized that what's being conveyed in the word is uh, a caution, a caution to the person who's studying these energetics. The word says, perception is the foundation of measure. And I thought about that, and I realized that if while I was sleeping at night, someone came into my room and changed everything, doubled the size of all the dimensions, including my bed and myself, that when I woke in the morning, I would have no way of knowing that because my ruler and my tape measure would still seem to measure the same length. But in fact, all the sizes had been objectively doubled. What the Egyptians are trying to tell us with the word is, if someone is messing with the pace at which time runs, which we expect to be a constant, and because of messing with that pace of time, make it look to us as if space has expanded, we have no way, objective way of judging that without very careful observation of what's happening. We can see it. There are a couple of ways that we can see it. Um, a pivotal question to ask yourself is, what is it that causes the wavelength of light to extend? We have a spectrum of light that runs from gamma rays to microwaves. And the difference in the segments of the spectrum of light turn on the wavelength of the light. Um, scientists understand that what was emitted as gamma rays at the time of the Big Bang, they now study as microwaves. And so the question is, the, the, the pivotal question is, what is it that has the potential to cause the wavelength of light to extend? Because clearly it has since the Big Bang if they're studying gamma rays as microwaves. And my answer to that, my simple answer is, it's the pace of time. A slowing pace of time would make it appear to us that that wavelength was longer when it wasn't necessarily. So in the electric, electromagnetic spectrum itself, we have documented precisely what the Dogen are telling us is happening with energy. A slowing pace of time has transmuted gamma rays into microwaves. Now, I had sorted out from the symbolism, the Dogen symbolism, that there are 14 stages to that, uh, those energetics that, uh, that define this continuum of energy. I understood that before I took a close look at the spectrum of light and realized that scientists conceptualize that in 14 stages. And just like the Dogen, define their stages based on factors of 10 of the, the pace of the frequency of the light. So again, the electromagnetic spectrum itself is affirming in an objective way what the Dogen are telling us happens with energy. As a part of all that, we get into some interesting concepts. Einstein defines time Just as a fourth. Just going to you there. Minute. I see Cosmic's hand's gone up again, so she has another question. Okay. But, uh, just making sure she's got time to get back to unmuting. 
Okay, so so before we started this talk today, uh, Myron and I believe it was Mike and I were talking about how time had seemed really strange the last few days. It did not feel normal. I was just wondering, have you detected that? Have you noticed a, a change in the way time is being perceived? And does that dovetail with the things you're saying right now? Well... I consider myself, imagine, imagine me being shipped by the manufacturer and you take me out of the box. Coming out of the box, I consider myself to be the least intuitive person I knew. That I, I am not sensitive to energies the way a lot of people are. I have, I have a son who is highly sensitive. I have a wife who is sensitive. I have friends who are highly, highly, highly sensitive. But I myself very rarely get a sense of things in terms of changes in energy. I do see lots of reasons to, to think that there are interesting, uh, that the time is not a, a constant thing, that there are changes that occur in the flow of time um, and that we witness, but that we sort of write off. Uh, but that's a, a subject for a whole other discussion. So no, I have not been, I have not myself been keenly aware of changes in, in time right now but in general, I'm aware that time changes. Complicated answer. Well, you can get that with stresses and whether it be kind of, say, the situation that's going on now when people are in fear or even when you've got, say, someone passes away and you're in that kind of loop of time, just kind of you lose the ability of focusing on time. You just feel like you're at a standstill point. I've had that from friends who have had loved ones pass away or people who've had accidents and their kind of time sense has been knocked out due to the actual accident they've had. But it comes back after months, but it's not something that is springing back like a rubber band. Well, once right. again, it's, it's relative, right? <laughs> it's relative right. to where you are. <laughs> but there are ways that I do perceive um, effect of time. Um, I've always had the ability to, um, I've had vivid control over my dreams. I've always been able, if I didn't like the way a dream turned out, I could rewind it and play it again until it, over and over again until it turned out the way I wanted it to turn out. Oh, a quick one for you, Led, talking about dreams as you are. We've got Krista DeMaio, if she's still here, but she's done several talks on lucid dreaming, and we've had some very good discussions about how those things can be manipulated, which was fantastic, which we're going to cut up and put into a podcast as well. So I'm glad That's that you're great. coming across a lot of all the topics that we really do like discussing within this environment. Well, that's great. Continue, yeah. uh, another, um, I have to step back for a minute to explain another concept that um, – Oh, before you go there, I've just seen that Myron's got his hand up, so I'll make sure that we, obviously, it's tying up with this one before you get onto yours. Myron? Yeah, I have, I have uh, first of all, how do you spell Dogen? <laughs> D-O-G-O-N. Okay, I was right. All right, okay, that's that's first. I got that one right. That's one I got right. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> that's the only one so far. Okay. Right. Now, um, I had another question, and that was, did the Dogen um, put any emphasis on constellations and on and any any particular constellation? Period. 
Yes, they do. Um, they use astronomical bodies to illustrate a lot of the dynamics of energy I'm talking about. And so the dynamic of the two Sirius stars is an illustration of angular impulse. Yeah, um, first, yeah I mean, you know, Osiris, you know, obviously is, is, is Orion. And you know, so that's right. the ancient Egyptians. So do the Dogen have anything to do with Orion or not? Yes, as a matter of fact, in a, in a complicated way, we can demonstrate that Robert Boval's outlook, he's a friend of mine, uh, that the three pyramids, uh, three large yes. pyramids of Giza represent the belt stars of Orion. Yes. The Dogen references absolutely directly confirm that that's true. They're trying to point us to um, a spiraling birthplace of stars that's very, very faint. The light can only be imaged through time-lapse photography. It centers on the belt star. It's called Barnard's Loop. And when you image it, it looks like the wheel of a chariot that Orion the Hunter is standing in. And so the Dogen call it uh, the chariot of Orion. You know, it's interesting. It. There was another another tribe, and I don't remember which one it was, that 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 in their minds they were actually their origin was in Orion, somewhere in in Orion, a planet in Orion. Now, this was an African tribe. It wasn't the Dogen. It was another tribe that I had read about, and uh, it's it's an interesting. It's interesting how many cultures have selected Orion. Confucius talked about Orion himself. Now, my wife, my ex, my ex-wife was a direct descendant of Confucius. So when we were in China, we were in his garden. They had a special garden in Beijing um, with all of his writings on posts, and you could read them and all of that. And he specifically stated a connection in the Yichang with, with Orion. And right. it, it's just fascinating to me, culture to culture to culture to culture, that Orion has some real significance for the human brain. You want to tell me about that? Yes. Uh, let me explain from the Dogen perspective what's going on with Orion symbolism. I spoke okay. to you that about the, the domain of superconductivity, that a spark evokes two monopoles of magnetism and that the three emerge together from the domain. And then from there, the rotation of the magnetism allows the electrical charge to extend, but in a particular dynamic, there's a particular shape that goes with how it extends. That same set of, um, of interactions yeah, we can demonstrate is what uh, the Dogen are saying happened to produce our sun. That Barnard's loop is um, the spiraling rotation of the counterpart to that spiraling rotation of magnetism and electricity. That the Dogen are saying that the bright star of Sirius and our sun were in the same place at one time and since have moved apart. And the diagram they give for how they move apart is a match for the dynamic of how magnetism and electricity interact with each other in that superconductive domain. So ultimately, if we're talking about um, physical creation, that the significance of Barnard's loop and the Sirius stars and the belt stars is, um, is precisely that they illustrate in our 
direct view, direct view of us, um, that dynamic having happened and provide us with an understanding of how it was that our sun relates to those two stars. For my purposes, it's the rotation of Barnard's loop, which is large and massive, that creates precession of the equinoxes. Um, Walter Cruttenden tried to argue that there's a binary relationship between Sirius and the sun, but a simple binary relationship between stars shouldn't work at that distance. Gravity, gravitational influences shouldn't do it. But with a body as large as Barnard's loop as possible. It's one last question, and that is, since uh, hieroglyphics, maybe 5,000, 10,000 years ago, whenever, whenever they began, and the writings in, in China, and they have parallels, like the, right. the circle, and they have parallels. So right. does that suggest to you that they have, they interfaced culturally at long time distances past? There is some writing that Lao Tzu talks about that hints that they did have a contact with Egyptian culture, but it's just a hint. It's not any statement. You know, it's not definitive, but it right. does. It does kind of look like it's parallel. Like these ancient cultures were starting to, you know, move towards a common symbolic language, and then you've got cuneiform in Mesopotamia which I guess is the next step. And I was wondering if, if there was any connection between all three of those things. And that ancient world would seem like civilization for, for like 5,000 years. That was civilization. And okay, imagine that you and I in high school, went to high school in different, different years, but right. we both had the same math teacher. Right. Now, years later, we meet up at a party and we discover that there are these unique little mathematical parables and tricks and, and uh, you know, little mnemonics that we both know. Not because you and I ever had contact with each other, but because we had the same teacher in high school. The Dogen and the Buddhists are saying that's what the situation is, that what these ancient cultures share is a common instructed tradition that is more archaic than the the cultures themselves. It was a civilizing plan for humanity closely integrated with a symbolic cosmology, a creation tradition. And yeah. so there are certain signatures of that tradition that if simply knowing that a culture um, perceives a wheel or a chariot associated with Orion is a signature. They can't think that without having been influenced by this tradition. If they used a cubit as a unit of measure, that's a signature. They were they benefited from the same era of instruction. Um, so there's a, a whole set of these where a, a single factor tells me up front with no no further study that I'm looking at a culture that what that had the influence. Certain think, words. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I mean, after all, Chinese iconography is really like like the symbolic Egyptian. I mean, there are symbols. Those 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 letters right. are really right. symbols. They're not they're not they're not an alphabet. You know, right. I mean I try I tried to figure it out with my wife teaching me how to 
how to read Chinese. And I just went, no, I'm not going to learn Chinese. <laughs> I, I can't do it. I tried Egyptian. I tried Egyptian and I got a few of those because I've been involved with Horace for ever since I was a child. But that's another subject. Anyway, um, oh. is cuneiform not part of that symbology because it's because it's written in a, in a in a letter language i think i don't know i'm i'm asking a question um cuneiform as we understand it now was preceded by a symbolic language that was more like what the chinese or the egyptians had That's cuneiform what I was is not not the starting point of that it's it's what developed as the permanent system of writing there but it, it's, it wasn't the original system of writing there but so, so they, they did start that way and then move towards a written system. Right. Now, with an alphabet. From our ability to trace this, our ability to trace the, the, the um, system of symbolism ends at the, it bumps up against the Ice Age. It, right. The Ice Age becomes a block to uh, direct evidence in, many, in most cases. Yeah, However, from Glenn Campbell, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell. Right. right. Okay, so our first evidence of the tradition begins at Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, around 9000 BC. Sorry, I just didn't see a pause uh, before that for you, Leah, because obviously Cosmic had her hand up at the same time, talking about obviously language at this point, before we go okay. on to the next section. So, Cosmic? Yes, I just want to uh, point out to everybody, and Laird, you are a Cosmic librarian, by the way, for sure. <laughs> The other thing I'd like to point out that, uh, yeah, I know, because, um, you know, I spent a lot of my life studying as much of everything as I can. And that includes cultures, ancient, current, and all that. And the more you learn about all of these cultures, these ancient ones especially, the more commonality you began to see between all of them. It's it's really strange. And take the wild food to start to develop that. And you have definitely got it in spades. But I, I would also want to give a plug for, for your book, uh, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, because I think it'll help a lot of people uh, kind of grok what you're saying right now, because that book really goes into detail about all these various cultures of the ancient world and all these common threads beyond the the Dogon, the Maori, you know, a, a bunch of cultures and other cultures in Africa that some people have never even heard of. And uh, what I would just say to everybody that's listening to this, learn as much as you can and read all those, those books and things that go into things about these cultures and these people so that you can see about the commonality of humanity. I think that's so important. That's all I'm going to say. I got off the soapbox. That works really well because I've just put all 16 books that I found into the chat section Thank that you. Red's written for people to uh, look at. The, the topics and, I'm talk, talking about today mostly pertain to the most recent book called Ama and the Spark of the, uh, the Universe. Which is in that list. One of, the, one of the things later on at some point, which would be nice to, it might not be today, but it's talking of the bi-universes and how information transfers between that. But we'll see how people go. One of the things for the people who haven't actually studied or know about the Dogon is giving them a location where they are and how isolated they were compared to the rest of the world and not picking up other information. 
and how their language was there, I think is a good point for people. Right. Um, the, the Dogen have moved, um, they moved to where they are right now uh, sometime after 1500 AD. They're um, to the, in Southeast Mali. Uh, Mali is in the Northwest, sort of the Northwest hump of Africa. Um, Timbuktu is the major um, municipality. Uh, an eight-hour drive south across desert country brings you to um, an escarpment where the Dogen uh, villages are mostly set. Uh, they deliberately situated themselves to try to preserve as best they could the tradition. Um, a point I wanted to make that connects to the dreams and to language and to the cosmology and to the uh, China connection to this tradition has to do with the dynamic that characterizes anything that passes across the boundary between uh, non-materiality and materiality. Um, you can think of that, I mean, ancient references refer to it as the face of the waters. It compares in physics to the surface of water. Many of the dynamics are the same as the, the surface that differentiates a domain of air from a domain of water. Now, anything that crosses that boundary from non-materiality to materiality experiences a unity to multiplicity uh, effect. Quintessential examples are white light shining through a prism that produces a spectrum of seven colors or a tone of music that associates with uh, an octave of seven notes of music. Uh, the cosmological words that define this system each carry clusters of meanings, and the meanings don't really associate with the phonetics. They associate with the concepts. And so you, I can use those clusters to positively correlate terms across the boundaries of cultures and even across the boundaries of different languages because certain discrete meanings that shouldn't cluster together do. And so it's not a linguistic argument, but it's it's a cosmo it's the same thing as comparing two deities who have the same icons and the same role in the in the pantheon of deities, and a, you know you can make the argument that you're talking about the same god. In that framework, the name Gobekli has multiple meanings. Years ago, my friend John Anthony West and, and Robert Schock were about to take a trip to Gobekli Tepe, and I, my wife and I were fortunate to be invited to a party the night before they left, and I wanted to know about Gobekli Tepe, so I did some research and discovered that in the modern Turkish language, there are 25 separate meanings for the word Tepe, and at least a dozen of those are preserved in the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary. Same phonetic, same meaning. One of those um, sets of meanings, using those sets of meanings for the two terms, one of the ways you can interpret the name Gobekli Tepe is Central Hill, which is also the translation of Opolis in Greek, in ancient Greek, that uh, the ancient Greeks intentionally established their temples at the top of hills that were centrally located. Well, Gobekli Tepe, if you look at a, at a map, is situated very centrally between China, you know, uh, land areas in, in Asia like China, uh, Tibet. Um, you move southward through the through the Levant 
to Egypt. You move um, south and a little bit west, and you're in uh, the Mediterranean and in Africa. So Central Hill, um, the concept of Gobekli Tepe as a central point of instruction um, is one of the things that makes sense about why the ancient Chinese have similar concepts to what the ancient Egyptians did if they both received instruction in the same place. Um, now, certain things we experience express themselves in terms of those same clusters of meanings, and one of those things are vivid dreams. So quite often if a person can tell me the key images and uh, words, actions, um, feelings that they experienced in a dream, a very vivid dream, very often I can go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary, discover what phonetic value is being multiply represented in those images, and pinpoint an additional word based on the same phonetics that looks like the likely meaning of the dream, likely message of the dream. Another thing that plays out the same way are contacts with UFO entities that I was reading um, accounts that were kept by uh, psychiatrists John Mack and um, Bud Hopkins. Um, and time and time again, what the experiencer was relaying were a set of experiences that cluster that same way, where they're expressing multiple um, multiple expressions of the, of the same Egyptian phonetic value um, in the context of this experience they had. Um, anything that expresses itself that way, one of the implications is that it originates non-materially. It doesn't originate materially. And that says to me that all of the concepts I'm researching, the cosmological concepts, as the Dogen claim, actually relate to root seed concepts that, that persist non-materially and not materially. This is, this is knowledge that's passing across that boundary between non-materiality and materiality. Uh, I wanted to say about consciousness, we were talking about Barnard's Loop and how the two stars of Sirius and the sun emerged from Barnard's Loop and uh, the sun distanced itself from the Sirius stars in the same um, dynamic as the root dynamic of magnetism and electricity. That dynamic is in the shape of an Egyptian um, uh, sickle glyph, glyph. It's sort of an outward and a uh, swoop. It's sort of a uh, roughly S-shaped um, dynamic that, that it experiences. It's how magnetism induces electricity to move. But that same shape is also the Egyptian glyph that is the root concept of, un of, of consciousness, of understanding a thing, that the ability to perceive a thing is represented by that shape. So I know without studying it deep, more deeply that the root dynamic of perception rests on that same interaction between magnetism and electricity. There, there are a few more concepts that are really interesting ones that we that need to be talked about. I started to talk about it. Einstein considers time to be the fourth dimension. But we know that no action reasonably occurs in, without, except in the concept of time. So time needs to be the first of the dimensions, not the fourth. So what that leaves us with, 
Okay, in the mo- in the modern perspective, a geometric point has no dimensionality because it precedes the first linear dimension, which is a line. From the Dogen perspective, a geometric point does have dimensionality. It has the attribute of duration. But as soon as we say that, we stumble across a hugely important concept. And the concept is that there are energetic parallels to dimensions. Um, an electric point charge is um, expressed by a single point just as a geometric point is. Magnetism in the real world only appears as two poles, north and south. So now we have the energetic equivalent of a geometric line. A superconductive domain is the energetic equivalent of an area, a geometric area. And there are Hindu and uh, Dogen symbols that are are meant specifically to express this idea that three non-material counterparts to dimensions are connect with three material linear dimensions. The Dogen expressed that with a sort of a squared figure that looks like um, two pitchforks back to back. In Hinduism, it's the Vajra, which is uh, rounded pitchforks back to back. Um, but that leads us to even more interesting things because it turns out that the three monopoles that emerge from the superconductive domain interact with each other the same way that the three atoms of a water molecule interact. And so literally from the Duggan perspective, this whole scheme of energy is predicated on water. And that's why the dynamics of energy in physics are such a close parallel to the dynamics of water because ultimately for the Dogen, it's the same thing. It is water. Um, During the phase, okay, half of the phase moves us from superconductivity to superinsulation. That's where material forms are created. The second half of the phase moves us back from superinsulation back to superconductivity. But in that second half of the cycle, we don't get material forms created. The Dogen say that's because the energetics don't produce water. In the, se- in the first half of the phase, you get one um, electrical point charge connecting with two magnetic monopoles. And the connection together is in terms of eight lines of magnetism, which are equate to um, the, the eight connections between hydrogen and an oxygen added in a water molecule. Working from super insulation, you have the reverse happen. You have two monopoles of electricity and one of, of magnetism. And that would be like having two oxygen atoms and one hydrogen atom. It would not produce water. And the Dogen say, because it didn't produce water, Amma's first attempt at creating things, because for the Dogen, the, this dynamic begins with magnetism, that that first phase from superinsulating to superconductive was a failed attempt at creation because it didn't produce water. That's a lot to take in. I'm sorry. but No, I mean, obviously all the topics are, you're going over them in a very surface area because they're so deep. And there's just so much which is fantastic to go into i mean when would you like having questions put to you from the people here because i know you have time 
I do. We, uh, we can those questions now. This seems like a good point to stop and address unanswered questions. Excellent, because I have a few, but I'm going to let other people get the opportunity <laughs> to put their hands up. So those who would like to step forward, say hello, or put a question, obviously raise your hand now. I can see Shelley Fox. Good evening, and it's nice to see you. Hello, everyone, and thank you for um, sharing just this beautiful wisdom. It's like everything you're saying just resides and resonates with um, much of our under my husband's and my understanding and bringing stuff forward. But this is something that I find absolutely fascinating. When you were speaking about like between communications and concepts between ancient civilizations and them having like they could be far apart, but yet there was that thread of consistency. It, even if we look at it today, because you can take and look at this time loop, I mean, the ancients and now even now, that the indigenous cultures um, were so in tuned with nature and whether, you know, the water, the energy, the breath, the, the wind, everything, and their understanding from their culture comes in. Right now, we are exhibiting many of those same things like people here in the United States or people in Africa or South America, whether it be part of their own cultural understanding, whether it be through their, okay, religious doctrines or anything to that matter. It is really the same consciousness, the same premise that's going forward. So there's little deviations here or there, but the major concept still remains the same. And to me, when you take all the equations out, everything, that is a truth. And that is a truth of energy. That is a truth of understanding the influences. It's understanding. And I believe that some of these ancient symbols were actually more accurate to expand upon a concept than what we actually have right now. And it is absolutely phenomenal. And I'm just sitting here and I'm just sending you sweethearts on it because it's like everything you're saying is absolutely phenomenal just great i love it um my major focus is that of energy and um how it influences us how it um we make our decisions and and yet we live in this field this beautiful and it is it's a culture and it's a language and yet many people are unaware of how to function within it it's like functioning in a society if you're you know you take a plane you go somewhere and land somewhere and you you don't understand the culture you don't understand the language it takes quite a long time of trial and error in order to start navigating within that field and so i'm just oh my gosh i just i just love you (laughs) i just love you where were you when i was in high school (laughs) Uh, probably doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a piece of this that, um, okay, part of what you learn through studying the, the Dogen system is that a set of facts is one thing, and are very facts are obviously very useful, especially if they're, it could, they can be shown to be objective. But far more powerful are the inferences that can be drawn from the facts. And the whole mode of instruction centers on teaching us to to do that, to draw inferences from what we've been told. Well, one of the 
uh, interesting inferences of the way the dynamics of energy work is consciousness uh, for the Dogen applies to these same, the same dynamics in parallel ways to what I've been talking about. So I said that when light crosses the boundary between non-materiality and materiality, it produces seven rainbow colors. White, white light produces seven rainbow colors that are related to each other inherently. Well, if consciousness crosses that same boundary, then parallelism insists that there are a group of people out there that we are intimately linked to through consciousness that we're not aware of. Yes. And, you know, there is information that uh, each and every one of us have been born within a certain um, ray and there are seven rays and they symbolize um, specific um, uh, components. But and this is what is so phenomenal when you really think about it, no matter everything brings you completely back to source. No matter what that source is, the source of us, our I am, everything, it, no matter where we study, however we look at things. And, you know, my favorite saying is our perceptions are our only limitations. And those perceptions can also be a tool to propel us forward. But it's just like, wow, I just, um, I just really resonate with you. I follow you a little bit here and there. And I just um, thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to um to hear from you yes thank you thank you for being thank here. you very much for for joining us joining us and thanks for your comments sure, uh, there's before, another sorry, very just, well, i'm sorry, sorry there's another very important concept I, I need to mention um the the buddhist diagram for us what the house space actually emerges and what they what they're diagramming is and the dogon agree with this is that every at every point in space time there's a tiny overlap between circular domains cuts conceptualize the circular domains it creates a vesica pisces type shape an almond shape at every point in space and time now that almond shape is also the shape that applies to a lens in optics there's a perspective that the Dogen are putting forward that, for example, with an, a hydrogen atom, when we see, we know that an electron and a hydrogen atom orbits at certain key distances from the proton. The first thing is, from the Dogen perspective, those distances are controlled by resonance points the same way that music resonates. There are certain points that resonate and certain that don't. And so the electron can only appear at the the intervals that that agree with the resonance. But the second more more probably more significant point is that the what what the slowing of time frame that's associated with the input of energy into the atom is causing to have happen may be a magnification of our view of the atom, not an actual expansion of space. And it could be that might very well be that the electron is not shifting at all in relation to the the uh, electron, I mean the proton. The proton and the electron are actually entangled particles. Um, it could be that the distance there all from the start going forward is all just a, a result of magnification of view so that it looks to us as if things expand when they don't really. That's, uh, I was just going to say, before Shadow Fox finishes and then we go on to Myron and then Cosmic, um, Shadow Fox should really expand a little bit more on the fact of what she does with light and what her husband does with sound energy as well, because that kind of fits in and gives you right. more of a clue about them as a pair. 
if you're still there, Shutterfox. Yeah, yeah actually, again, it's the raising of consciousness. It's the healing. It's all of those mechanisms come together. It's my, my um, I guess, my forte, what I work with specifically, like either on one-on-one with people, is working with um, light energy. That is just... Mm, just light energy. Okay. We'll leave it at that. And my husband works within the sound frequencies. And again, that is for healing. That is for awareness, conscious awareness, expansion, because the two really, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there are two separate things to specifically um, declare, such as we have um, a positive charge and a negative charge, but the whole component works together so that we have that one molecule. And um, the knowledge that just from how the ener- energy flows, my major thing really is uh, cosmic, you know, cosmic law, universal law, spiritual and natural law. That's all energy and it all comes together. So when you tie these things together, this is where um, we can gain a greater understanding. We can gain the power, whether it be through our thoughts and our feelings and bring light energy into our bodies. Uh, if we requiring healing on the physical, mental, emotional, or astral plane, all of these things is part of consciousness. When, when we are looking at things like in space and we're saying like, um, uh, the dark energy, so on and so forth, I really don't know why anybody would have ever called that titled it that I have no idea, but they're looking and studying it out in space and they're coming to conclusions. And yet if they studied the human field, the human body, the energy field, they would have the exact same results. And this is where even when you're looking at from a culture, ancient cultures that had, there was no no communication as far as like telephones like we have now. It is absolutely, the resonance just is absolutely phenomenal because it truly can direct us into where that that truth is. And truth is always relative based upon how you're perceiving your your own reality. So I'll just leave it. But yeah, I just um, I just enjoy listening to someone that's bringing this information that um, it's like right there, you know, just resonates. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Samkhya in India is the the one of the early expressions of the cosmological philosophy that I'm exploring. It's a companion to yoga in India, and all of the terminology is the same. It's just yoga is the individualized expression of, of the cosmological concepts. So that goes along with what you're saying, that simply to look at an individual and the energetics of what makes a person a person, um, you're addressing all these same concepts. Yeah, you know, just, I just love it because it's like we're comparing notes here and it's like so cool. My husband and I have just finished the book. It's getting ready for publication, but it's and it has to do with, you know, laws, how energy influences us. It's the nuances. But it honestly, I, I'm just just taken by by the wisdom that you're sharing and all the work and the dedication that you've had. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so we got Myron Cosmic and then Greybeard for questions okay. and answers. 
still my app? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I have uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, so um, I also am, uh, you know that, that the body is an electrical system. And when you have a seizure, that, that electrical system breaks. And it opens for a minute or two minutes, and then it closes and reconnects. And when, when the whole system reconnects, then um, uh, it, creates, it creates, for me, um, visions. Hallucinations, uh, if you want to call them that, but that word has no meaning. Uh, right. The word hallucination doesn't mean a thing. I mean, that doctors use it all the time. It just doesn't mean anything. Uh, <clears throat> so when when I see a vision that is visceral, in other words, it's it it it, it actually moves my body. It, it isn't just something that's out there. It is something that's in here that's out there. And the connection between light and the vision. It starts out as a screen of light, and then the screen of light turns into an image, whatever the image is. And then I make I make a record of it, and then that's what my art is. It's it's all a record of, of all of these images that I see through the uh, my hippocampus, which is damaged, and my visual memory, which is damaged. Um, and the, I noticed when I got older. I've had this for 74 years because I came out of a coma and I lost all my memory. But sound, sound was so prevalent, especially vibration, um, that I have a, sen a synesthesia too. I, if I hear B flat, I see blue, mm -hmm. just like that. And <laughs> that my paintings are filled with blue because every time I hear B flat, you know, and, and you know, the overtone series is going to, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to hit B flat. So I'm a musician on top of that. I'm an artist, but I'm also a musician. So every time I'm playing a piece on the piano and I hit B flat, I see blue, even if it's part of a chord. So the rest of those pictures don't, don't affect my consciousness at all, but the B flat does. So I'm playing along and on, the, on my, my music, I see blue on the, on the white paper. And if, you know, it goes away, and, and after a while, you just get used to it. You know, it's just like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, okay. you don't even worry about it. But, but I think that the really important part was the electrical magnetism. I was reading, I was reading a, an article that Tesla had written years ago about uh, the human body and, and its electrical system and how it works with the electrical system of the entire universe. And... Um, I noticed that when, when, when my electrical system is, is, is activated, i.e. interrupted, it's a better word, interrupted, there's something about the, the cohesion of the interruption that opens my brain to this huger, this, this much larger area of reality. And the room can get 50 times the size that it normally would be. Things can move all, all over the place, and I can see things that are like trees and and things here that that uh, that aren't here. Well, maybe they are here, but right. uh, or maybe they were here. Maybe it's an ancient memory. I don't I don't know. And and, if, and I'm sure that a lot of the shamans in, in Dogen and other cultures 
they're, they're mostly epileptic anyway. And I know that and because uh, I've studied that quite a bit and I've traveled quite a bit with shamanism. And um, my point, get this out, keep me rattling on. My point <laughs> is that, that it has something to do with the electrical magnetic field inside my brain that opens this door. And once it's open, it, it won't shut until the image or images have said what they're going to say. Now, here's the trick. And no one has answered this question. Sometimes I can be out eight hours. So a seizure can only take one or two minutes or even 30 seconds, because if it takes longer than five minutes, you're dead. Right. Um, so it can't go that long. My neurologist can't answer this question. So why, what is it that I'm, when I, when I open the door and it lasts six or seven hours and in that transpersonal time, all, I see these sparks of electricity all over the place. And they, not only do they spark, but the images are created from the sparks. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's as honest the way I can say. I haven't even told my doctors that. I and mean, they just kind of look at me like, oh, yeah, right, okay. And they write it down. Um, so every time there's a spark, there's an image that is, that is expanded and created. Now, if ancient culture, I, I, I'm sure that this is across all cultures, because when you read the data, the, the information of their myths, they correspond with these kinds of interactions with the brain. And then we are human and we, you know, all of this comes out of us through the penal gland or the brain or the eyes or whatever. Well, not the eyes that we really don't see. It's the brain that sees. And uh, I guess I'll close this off by saying that, that between the vibration of sound, which is paramount in my cosmology, the vibration of sound alone can move me into what I call changing my assemblage point. All right. If I change my assemblage point, I see a different reality. Whether you mm -hmm. call that a seizure or whether you call that, you know, just moving into another dimension or whatever you want to call it. I really, those are words and I couldn't care less about the, the okay. words. It's the experience that I care about. And so when those sparks finally start to fade, because they will start to fade, those electrical sparks, um, kind of like a like a you know a firecracker going out, and they, they when they finally fade, the images fade with them, and the and the change of reality also shifts back to normal memory. So. Um, the thing about it is, and I'll close with this, I never, ever forget what I experienced in that realm. Whereas in this realm, I don't remember very much at all. I, my, my, my memory, I'm 78 years old, so I can't even put the decades together, never mind the experiences of those decades. But I can tell you what I saw when I was five years old after I came out of my coma the exact details of those hallucinations or those experiences or those 
those transpersonal happenings. And I, I have a record of them. I have 8,000 works of art that is a record of all of that stuff. And it's interesting how the memory in the brain works. Since I can remember those, somehow those are more potent than this external reality that we call reality. So there, so I've never, no one has been ever, ever been able to explain to me why I would be out that long and why my memory would be 100% accurate on things that intruded or were, were uh, exercised by this experience of light because it, it is connected to light. Uh, you know that, that a lot of epileptics, you know, when things shudder, they, they have seizures and the light changes, they say they have seizures. Right. Even color will give you a seizure. Um, and that's not necessarily epilepsy, that can be just a seizure. Epilepsy is a specific thing. But anyway, that's that's what I wanted to to well, what you to. What you're describing is pretty much the way the continuum of energy works in yeah. the Dogen's. And the idea that that moves uh, moves us through um, stages of consciousness or even stages of uh, forms of life um, up through those 14 steps up um, is also in the Dogen mindset. And the oscillation of energy uh, the um, from the Dogen perspective, it looks as if oscillating energy, the reason why, why when you have um, a dipole, a dipole persistently, move, persistently moves out and then back and out and then back and out and then back, the indication is that energetically it's, it's going through the same continuum that the larger continuum is. It's going from a superconductive state to a superinsulating state, which then prompts it to move back again. I can understand how an initial spark would have to play itself out, out to the point where um, the either the magnetism or the electricity had dropped below a th- certain threshold to put it back into one of the two states. Yeah, This is interesting because I think it will also probably tie in with biophotons and the two kind of realms of consciousness of transferring where the light comes in and out, where they're looking at the zero-point energy field as well. Tesla was talking about that a long time ago. I, I read that book. To help our research and understanding, leave Perceptions Today's podcast reviews, subscribe to the podcast, along with the other social media accounts, and share. Come and join our live events. That way we can get together and have thoughtful discussions along with advancing our understanding of concepts as we go along.